One of the things that's been really kind of fun for me over the last couple of weeks is my middle son, Jack, who is three. I have Micah, who's five, Jack, who's three, Judah, who's one. My middle son, Jack, this is the first year where he's kind of, uh, I guess, awakened to the reality and the wonder of Christmas. You know, last year he was too young to get it. And then something between last December and this December kind of clicked in. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's his older brother kind of feeding him the story. Hey, this is what's getting ready to happen. Maybe it's the songs he's been listening to in the car or the movies or the books, whatever it is. He is kind of awakened to the wonder of Christmas. And so a few days ago, we put up our Christmas tree. We had a fire going in the fireplace, you know, just kind of just very Christmassy in our house. And I'm sitting there on the fire, kind of led to the fireplace um, with uh, Jack, and he looks at me, and he begins telling me everything he knows about the story of Christmas. And if you know Jack, he is just passionate, like through and through. He doesn't do anything halfway. And so he looks at me with those like big brown chocolate eyes, and he's just excited. And he said, Dad, do you know at Christmas, reindeer are going to land on our roof bringing a thing of toys? And I'm like, that's pretty epic, isn't it? And he's just like so excited. And then he's got this aspect to him that's much like Sydney, my wife. He is very, um, he's like very detail oriented. He says, dad, do you think our roof can support eight reindeer? Like, and I love this kid, you know, he's, he's gonna go to Vanderbilt, you know, like structural integrity of the house is like high on his Christmas list. And, and, and I'm like, yeah, I think so. And then he said, and do you realize Santa's gonna come down the fireplace and, and we can't make a fire that day and he's gonna, he's gonna leave toys and he's gonna eat cookies and drink milk and he's gonna leave. And I thought, this is the only time in his life when he's gonna be excited about a stranger breaking into the house, <laughs> eating the food, you know, leaving things. And, and I'm listening to Jack talk and he's just like full of wonder. And I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where uh, you're in the midst of a very physical experience and God teaches you a spiritual truth. Have you ever had that happen before? So I'm here with my son having this conversation about Santa Claus and cookies and the structural integrity of our roof for reindeers. And, and I'm looking at the wonder in his face and the spirit of God just, had, just illuminated my heart and said, Dave, you've lost the wonder of Christmas. And the spirit wasn't talking to me about Santa and, and reindeer and cookies. He, he was helping me see that somewhere along the way, and this is, this is kind of an embarrassing confession because I'm, I'm standing up getting ready to give you a sermon on Christmas, but maybe this relates to some of you. Somewhere along the way, living in Nashville, Tennessee, the belt buckle, the Bible belt, I've, I've just lost some of the wonder for the story of Jesus entering into the world. It's, it's not a crisis of my faith. Like I'm not having this like head crisis going, is this real? It's kind of a crisis of the heart where you hear a story over and over and over and the more familiar it becomes, the harder it is to receive it for what it is. I remember several months ago, I was out in California. I was actually in Malibu suffering for the gospel. And uh, I was there at this work meeting with a group of pastors. And I'm like, God, why didn't you send me to Malibu? But I'm there having this lunch meeting with five or six pastors that lived in the area. We're eating lunch at this place. You could look out and you could see the Pacific Ocean in every direction. I mean, it was just this amazing, breathtaking view. The palm trees, the sun is shining down in my face. And I could hardly pay attention to the, to the meeting because the, the beauty around me was just so stunning. And so about halfway through the meeting, I just kind of chimed in and I said, hey guys, do you ever find it difficult to work in a place like this with scenery that is this beautiful? And I'll never forget what one of the guys at the meeting said. He said, Dave, you get used to the beauty and then eventually you don't even notice it anymore. He said, every morning I drive down the Pacific Coast Highway to work and I barely even notice the ocean. 
And I realized living in Nashville, Tennessee, coming to the month of December, thinking about the birth of Jesus, sometimes feels like a Californian sitting by the ocean, struggling to see its beauty. And my, my confession is I've just been praying, God, would you hit the reset button on my soul today? Would you awaken the beauty and the wonder of this reality that God came to earth for us? How amazing is that? And then he came with vulnerability and humility and joy so that you could be in the house of the Father. <laughs> wow. And if you're like me, maybe you've heard it and you go, yeah, 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 yeah. And my whole goal this morning, this is the only thing I'm going to try to do, is I want to give us the space for God to awaken the wonder. Maybe it's for the first time in your heart. Maybe it's to reawaken the wonder um, so that you can receive what God is trying to do this morning. And so open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. And as I was marinating upon this story this week from Luke chapter 2, God kept awakening my wonder for Jesus, kind of in three areas. And if you take notes, you can write this down. Uh, for you, as we read through the story, maybe you'll find wonder in different places. But God kept awakening my wonder for Jesus in regards to his realness, his bigness, and his goodness. As I kept reading the story this week, as I kept praying through it, just the wonder of God's realness, the wonder of God's bigness, the wonder of God's goodness just kept washing over me. And I'm convinced that when the wonder of God begins to seize our hearts again, we become people who are hungry for holiness, people who are hungry for community, people who are hungry for the mission of Jesus. And so I'm going to take us into the story. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1 uh, this morning as we read through it. And the story picks up like this. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute. If you grew up watching those kind of cheesy Christmas Jesus movies from, that were made in the 80s that always show this time of year, you, you picture the scene of Christmas unfolding, but I want you to notice that the story of Christmas here in Luke's gospel doesn't start in Bethlehem, but it starts in Rome, it doesn't start in the countryside with the shepherds. It doesn't start with the magi. It starts in Rome in a government office with this man named uh, Caesar Augustus who's going to make a decision, who's going to sign a piece of paper that will change the trajectory, not just of the people's lives who are under his control, but will forever change the trajectory of human history. And I love this because we still find ourselves living in a time like this, right, where men and women with great power can push a button, can sign a law, can make a choice that disrupts the lives for millions. And this is what happens. Caesar Augustus wants to get more money from his people, so he demands that everyone leave their hometown, leave their work, leave their jobs, leave their families, and go back to the place they were born to be counted again so that the government can tax them more money. So this is not a very good start to the first Christmas story. Can you, can you picture getting an edict from President Obama that says, tomorrow, can't go to your work, can't go to your school, can't be with your friends. You've got to go back home to wherever it is that you're born, and you've got to stay there and wait through long government lines until you're properly counted, only so we can take more money from you when you get back home. And so this is the scene that unfolds in the first Christmas. It starts in Rome. And then if it was a movie, the camera's going to pan over to this place called Nazareth, and we're going to be introduced to a guy named Joseph, Joseph, who will be Jesus' stepfather, his earthly father, and a woman named Mary who has been entrusted with carrying God's one and only son. And the story is going to take place now in Nazareth. Jump down to verse 4. I want you to see this. 
says, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the town of Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. This is important. 700 years before Jesus was born, a prophet by the name of Micah, under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that a Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. And this is beautiful, because I want you to see the way that God is at work. He's not working around human history. He's not working in spite of human history. He's working in the midst of human history. And so the story opens up with Jesus' parents, and they find themselves in the wrong place at the wrong time, but God's not bothered by it. God says, let me work, let me deal with what Augustus, Caesar Augustus has done. Jesus will be in the right place at the right time. And so it says they leave Nazareth. It's about a 70-mile walk with a woman who was nine months pregnant on a donkey. It probably took five, six, seven days. It would have been quite a journey. Can you imagine having to take seven days to travel anywhere in our culture? It's a long trip. Pick up in verse five. It says, and they went there to register with Mary, who he is pledged to be married to, and expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth. She placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So if you were like me and you grew up watching that cheesy 1980s uh, movie of the, the Christmas story with Jesus being born, you picture this scene maybe, and Mary and Joseph are riding in on a donkey. She's got both feet hanging over one side of the donkey. She's wearing a blue sash. Not sure why it was always blue, but in the Jesus movies, it was always a blue sash. She's looking remarkably good for being nine and a half months pregnant and walking on a donkey through the middle of the desert, but here they are. And in the movies, isn't this the way it always unfolded? They would roll into Bethlehem at midnight. Her water has broken. She's in labor, and Joseph is knocking frantically on the door of the Holiday Inn, like, let me in. And the innkeeper is like the most wicked person ever, like Hitler's father, you know, and, and, and he's like, no room for a baby to be born in here, you know, no room for a savior. In the, in the movies, in the, in the plays, the innkeeper's always like, go out there to the barn and have your baby, and it's just kind of this crazy scene, but that's not what Luke describes. I want you to notice what Luke describes. I think sometimes we've seen the movie so long, we can't even really read the, 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 the word with fresh eyes. Luke says that they had been there for some time. We don't know if it was a day, a month, a week, two months, but they'd, they'd gone home to be counted for the census. So they were staying probably in the place where Joseph grew up as a kid. This was probably one of his relatives' homes. And all of the cousins and the uncles and the grandparents we're in this tiny little house waiting to be counted for this government census. And it says that in the midst of their time being there, Mary went into labor. And I don't know if you've ever been there for a human birth. I've been there for three. It's not something you want to do in front of a lot of people. It's kind of a, a crazy, hectic scenario. And Mary probably looked around that crowded little house with all of Joseph's relatives and went, you know what? We're not having a baby in this place. So there's no room. There's no guest room in the house. No place for her to have a baby in privacy. So they go outside to the shed to the barn, whatever it is that you'd imagine, the place where they'd tie up small animals and keep a lawnmower if it was in our day and age. And they go out there, and in this unexpected place, the glory of God breaks in to the human story. And Luke is describing this thing. It starts in Rome. It goes to Bethlehem. And then if it's a movie, the camera pans over a few blocks to this field where some shepherds are minding their own business. And it's gonna be here in the middle of their just casual work day or work night that just the glory of God breaks in. Look at verse eight. It says, and there were shepherds living out in fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born, listen to this, to you. Not of you, not from you. A savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of angels or of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And so this week I kept reading this story and marinating on this story. And the more I did it, the Lord kept just kind of awakening the wonder for the Christmas story in my heart, kind of in three directions, towards God's realness, towards God's bigness, and towards God's goodness. But I want to start with this idea of his realness. Well, my family, we have this tradition every Thanksgiving. We go home to see my parents, and we'll be there with my parents. And just down the street from their house in Charleston, South Carolina, is this um, really cheap movie theater. And so you can see new movies for about half the price. And so Sydney and I just try to stock up. And when we get there, let's see as many movies as we can. Free babysitting with my parents watching the kids. We can go to movies all day long. And so it's just kind of our tradition. Each afternoon over Thanksgiving break, we'll go see a movie. So we had seen two or three movies in a row over Thanksgiving break last week. And we came out of the third movie. And we we're talking about is it, it, an okay movie. And Sydney made the comment. She said, it was fine. It just feels like a story that I've seen before. And we started talking about it. We're like, yeah, that, that story is actually just like the story we watched yesterday. And, and we're talking about all the elements, the way that the stories were alike. And then it dawned on us that it's like the story the day before it as well. And have you ever noticed that so often the stories that we gather around are really just the same story told over and over and over with different characters in different settings, different actors? Unless it's a random indie movie that will win the Oscars that none of us have ever seen that has a, a bad ending. Every movie's the same. Every movie's the same. Good guy and a bad guy. Good versus evil. Light into the dark. The struggle of what it means to be human, being overcome by the perseverance of what it means to be human, right? We, we have these stories that we cling to, that we keep coming to, and she and I were just laughing, talking about it, coming back from the movie. It's like, man, every movie we see, every book we read, it's typically just the same story over and over and over. And I think there's a reason you and I will pay $14 for a bucket of popcorn and $31 for a Coke to sit in front of a screen and to watch a movie you've seen before. It's because a lot of us are convinced that what we need is a better story than the ones we're actually living in, right? And so if I can just escape the monotony or the sorrow or the struggle or the tragedy of my current story to find a story that's better. The reason we keep coming back, though, is because what we, I think, all intuitively know is that what we're seeing on the screen is just entertainment. And to escape for just a little bit over Thanksgiving break and to watch a story that inspires us, doesn't change us because we still have to go back to the story that we've been living in. I love this. I want you to notice this in Luke chapter two. Luke is telling the most epic story ever. He's saying, hey, there's a tyrant and he makes a choice that displaces millions of people. There's a cosmic scandal brewing in the belly of this unwed teenage girl who's telling everyone that she's carrying God's baby. There are angels erupting into the fields to declare things to shepherds. Luke is saying, listen, this is a story, but it's not just a story. It's the story by which all of your other stories are imitating, of light coming into dark, of good coming into the bad. And he says, but the difference is this story is real. 
And I want you to notice this because Luke is a brilliant guy. I think sometimes when we look back on history, we tend to put people in lower positions than us. Luke was a doctor. Luke did not grow up in a Christian house. He's a very educated guy from the country of Syria. And when he was an adult, he came to faith in Jesus. And he went on this madman hunt investigating the claims of Christ. And he becomes this follower of Jesus. And I want you to notice when he starts the Christmas story here in Luke chapter two, before he speaks to our hearts, he's gonna speak to our heads. And Luke is going to make it clear that you and I do not have to turn off our brains to capture the wonder of the Christmas story. I remember growing up in church, I used to think, okay, I think faith is just the opposite of reason. And the Bible says, no, 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 no. Faith is only real faith when it's walking in the midst of your reason. Like, and Luke says, don't turn off your brain. I want you to see how real this is. Look back at verse one and two. This is, this is important. I want you to see where I'm getting this from. He says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, issued a decree. Outside of the Bible, in all sorts of documentation, Caesar Augustus was a very real dude. He lived from 27 BC, or he ruled from 27 BC to 14 AD in the city of Rome. Lots of documentation on this guy, kind of a tyrannical leader. Most of the people that were on the bottom of society did not enjoy that he was the leader. But Luke goes even further. He says it wasn't just during the days of Caesar Augustus. He's going to pinpoint it even more narrowly for us. He says it was during the first census that was taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. We know that took place from external records to the Bible during the year 6 BC. It'd be like me standing up and starting a story this morning. In January of 2009, right after President Obama was sworn into office, this began to happen. And you would know that the rest of that story is something that's anchored in reality. Luke does not start the Christmas story. Once upon a time, God entered into the world. He says, no, in the midst of your real time, in the midst of your real place, in the midst of your real history, go check it out. Uh, amidst the time of Caesar Augustus, amidst the time of Quirinius's census, this is when this happened. And I love this because Luke is trying to awaken us to the wonder. This is not just another story. This is a real story. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a fable to help weak people deal with tough things. He's saying it's a real moment. And if you want to reject it, reject it on what it is. He says, but it's historical. You know, when is the last time you just stopped to allow the wonder of God's realness to wash over you in the midst of the Christmas season? When's the last time you just paused and went, man, God, you're real? I don't know what got you out of bed. I don't know what brought you here this morning, but have you thought about just the realness of God? I mean, he said he knows your thoughts, that he created you, that he's, he's been with you in every triumph and in every tragedy, and I know that brings some questions for some of you, and that's okay. But when's the last time you thought about the realness of God? Over Thanksgiving, one of my good friends, his mom collapsed right after they had eaten Thanksgiving uh, lunch. She collapsed on the floor. She's been a woman of relatively good health, and they struggled to get her to, to kind of wake up. They got her to wake up. They got her to the, the hospital, and they discovered after several tests that her body is just filled with cancer, and, a, and not the good cancer. I know there is no good cancer, but basically the diagnosis was, we're not even going to try chemo or surgery. It's just pain management at this point. So my buddy calls me, and he's like, can you just pray with me? Let's pray for my mom. We're on the phone praying. He's just telling me, hey, only a miracle can heal my mom right now. And in the middle of our prayers, one of the coolest moments that I've ever had in a time of prayer just really struck me. My friend Stephen just stopped our prayer, and he said, he said hey, Dave. 
Have you ever thought about how amazing it is that right now we're praying to a real God? He goes, I thank God like in this moment that he is real, that he is not just a figment of my imagination that I made up to help me cope with the challenging problems of what it means to be a human being. He's like, that he is a real God, that he really hears us. Now he may not choose to answer us the way that he wants, but that he's real. And my buddy in the midst of his grief was awakening my heart to the wonder of God's realness. And that's what Luke is doing. Luke is saying, listen, in real time, in real space, this is the story of Christmas, that a real God entered a real world in a real stable, outside of a real Bethlehem during the rule of a real tyrant to save real sinners like you and I. And you can receive the story or you can reject it, but make sure you reject it on the terms by which it is given. And that is that it is real. Francis Schaeffer, when he used to start his prayers, he would pray, God, thank you for being real. And I went, wow, I don't know if I've ever prayed that before. But what a prayer. I go, what happened this season, this Christmas season, if the Spirit of God began to awaken you, began to awaken us to the realness? This is not a fairy tale or a doctrine or a myth, but God is doing something. But as I kept reading it this week, it wasn't just the realness of God and the wonder for that realness that kept awakening in me. I began to have this wonder for God's bigness. And I love this because you see this in the story. Everything in this story is over the top, Right? The birth announcement is over the top. You know, heavens are ripped open. Thousands of angels are there. The, the status of Jesus is over the top. They declare, this is the savior of the world. Like everything that happens in the story is bigger than, uh, more other than, than we could have ever gotten our minds around. I think it'd be interesting if we went around the room today and gave you the opportunity to share with the person next to you, what is one thing that you see happening in the world that causes you to have doubt in the goodness of God? It'd be amazing how easy it would be for all of us. What's one thing you see happening in the world right now that causes you to doubt the goodness of God? You, you could just list them. You could talk about the shooting in California this week. How could, how could that happen? How could it keep happening? For some of you, you look at things that are going on globally, war and famine and hunger, and you go, man, I don't see where God's at in the midst of that, right? Some of you, you don't have to look so far. You don't have to go globally. Some of you see it in the context of your own relationships. You got married six years ago. She was the love of your life, and now you're laying in bed with a complete stranger every night, and you can't figure out why your marriage isn't working. Or some of you have addictions that you have prayed about over and over and over and over and over. And you've asked God to remove, and, and they don't seem to go. I think deep within every one of us, we know that we have found ourselves in a situation for which we need saving from. I think it's the reason every year more superhero movies come out and more stories are told where we, we rally around this idea of someone from another, from another place breaking in and saving the day and changing, changing the, the way that we see things. It's because we know like deep within us that we need saving. And this is the declaration of, of Christmas that the hope for this world does not come from this world. I remember several years ago, one of my, my good buddies, he was an atheist when I met him. He had showed up at Ethos because a pretty girl had invited him to come, which is always an, an amazing evangelism strategy. He, he, he showed up and found out he was coming to church and he was very frustrated. But in the midst of my sermon that morning, I'd said, hey, if you don't believe in Jesus, I'd love to take you to, uh, to grab a cup of coffee. That's one of my passions. If, if you don't know the Lord, I love hanging out with people that don't know Jesus. And so he came up right afterwards and he said, I want to take you up on that offer. And I realized he was angry and just ready to spar. He's like, I've got questions. And I thought, man, I made a nine on my ACT. Like, I'm the, the wrong guy. 
I'm the wrong guy to ask big questions to, but uh, I'd be happy to go grab coffee. And so we went on this journey and we just started you know, grabbing coffee and eating lunch and hanging out together. And I remember this one day in particular, we we're sitting over at Chipotle um, near uh, um, Vanderbilt over uh, kind of off the West End area. Um, I was eating a chicken burrito bowl. In case you're curious, you can imagine the scene. And we're, we're in the midst of this conversation uh, talking about some of his doubts and his struggles. And he got very vulnerable, one of the most vulnerable moments uh, that we'd had in our friendship up to that point. He said, Dave, the choices I've made have cost me a marriage they have ruined my relationship with my children. Um, it has cost me a job, and it is currently robbing me of all real joy. He said, he said I have made a mess of my life. And he said, before I showed up at Ethos, I was looking everywhere trying to figure out how to clean up the mess because that's what, we all want to live good lives, right? I think that's like the human story. All of us want to live a good life. And he said, I was studying everything I could study, reading the books, listening to everything Oprah told me to do. He's like, I was just desperate. Where do I find hope? And then he made this statement that has stuck with me for almost two years. I think it needs to go down in like the great statements of all great statements. But he looked at me and said, Dave, if there is hope for cleaning up the mess of my life, that hope has got to come from someone other than me. If there's real hope for cleaning up the mess of my life, the hope for cleaning up that mess has got to come from someone other than me. He said, everything I keep reading keeps saying, dig down, <laughs> look, look further, try harder, <laughs> like get more organized. And he said, no, this is the hope for my salvation. I love this declaration of the angels. The angels tear open the heavens. I want you to see the bigness of this. Not only is Jesus real, but I want you to hear the exclamation. They say, a savior has been born to you. Why? Because you need saving. Because I need saving, we need saving, and a savior has come to you, and the hope of this world is not from this world. He's shown up, and he is bigger than, and stronger than, and more capable than anything we could have imagined. And he has this ability of putting back together the things that we have made absolute messes of. And the great news of Christmas is that there is hope for your marriage when it's failing. There is hope for your children when there is, they are rebelling. There is hope from your friend that does not know the Lord. There is hope in the midst of your workplace. But the joy of Christmas is it's a great reminder that you are not their hope. You are not the hope of your family. You are not the hope of your marriage. You are not the hope of your children. You are not the hope of your neighborhood. There is one who is the hope for all. And Christmas is like this big sigh of relief. You are real. And God, you are big enough to deal with the mess that I've really made. And I love this because Luke is awakening the wonder of his realness, of his bigness. I'll end with this. And awakening the wonder of God's goodness. I love this story because in every way it's different than a story we would have written. And I know this because we write stories very similar to this all the time that we see in theaters, that we read on our Kindles. We, we write stories, but they always end differently than the stories of other worlds breaking into our world, right? So I want you to think about what's unfolding in verses 10 through 14. The shepherds are there in the field, and it says that an angel shows up among them. And I go, what do you picture when you picture an angel? I was watching It's a Wonderful Life last night, and do you remember Clarence, the angel from that movie? <laughs> Is this old, kind of feeble white guy that can, I mean, I, I, don't, I wouldn't trust him doing anything. I mean, he's, he's not a very capable angel, but for some of us, that's the picture of an angel. Or maybe when you picture an angel, you, you picture that guy 
uh, from growing up, your church would put on a play and he'd wear that white dress and the huge wings and he was the angel. Or maybe you picture the angels from Valentine's, you know, a naked baby with wings and a, and a bow and arrow ready to shoot you. But when the Bible describes angels, they describe them very differently. I love the way that Isaiah describes his encounter with an angel. You realize this angel was gigantic. It's covered in eyes, covered in wings, holding a flaming sword. (laughs) Can you imagine how terrifying it would be if tomorrow you were sitting there at your cubicle and a portal between this world and the next was opened up and there was a nine-foot beast covered in eyes and wings with a flaming sword? You would not offer him a cup of coffee. Like... (laughs) You'd be terrified. It's the reason every time an angel shows up in the scriptures, what are their first words? Do not be afraid. Why? Because if you saw one, you would be terrified. Do you remember Daniel in the Old Testament, this like, great man of God, the man that faced the lion's den with great courage? It says that when an angel appeared to him, he passed out with fear. <laughs> terrifying. Just imagine tomorrow at your work, the commander of a foreign army showing up in full uniform, fully decorated, holding their weapon of choice. You'd be terrified. You look out and behind that one leader of that foreign army is thousands of other soldiers. None of you are sitting here going, huh, this is probably just a declaration of good news. We think about this story all the time. Every year, movies are made about this, right? Where aliens bust into planet Earth, and you know the way the story goes. They, they bust into planet Earth, and there's some weird love story that's going on, and they're gonna work through it together, and they're gonna, they're gonna find a tank somewhere, and they're gonna, they're gonna create this cosmic battle, and for 45 minutes or so, there'll be this battle between humans and these foreign realities. And in the end, we always win, right? Because deep in the human spirit, we believe that if someone from another world were to show up, they'd come only for one reason, and that is what? War. Luke chapter two reminds us from here on out what God's foreign policy is. Here in Luke chapter two, God's army is storming the beaches of Normandy within our hearts. And the declaration is not one of payback, but one of peace. And from now on, this is a story of God's cosmic message to humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, in that manger is a declaration of peace. This baby is a sign to you. And every time we come to Christmas, we're reminded that God is better than us. He's more wonderful than us. That when the heavens were torn open on that cold night more than 2,000 years ago, the angels should have come declaring war. Instead, they come declaring peace. Why? Because there would be a baby in that manger who would grow up, who would live a sinless life, who would die a sinner's death, who would lay in a tomb for three days and who would come back to to life saying, who wants to be in the Father's family? And every Christmas, we're reminded that not only is Jesus more real than we hoped for, Not only is he bigger than we could have imagined, but he is better and more wonderful than our imaginations could have ever constructed. And I want to challenge you on the front of this Christmas season to wrestle with two questions. And I don't know if you take notes, but we can talk about this in the midst of our communion time. You can talk about this in your house churches. But I want to challenge you to really wrestle with two questions as we come into December together. Here's the first question. What is it in your life 
that is keeping you from the wonder of Christmas? What is it in your life that is keeping you from experiencing and receiving the full wonder of Christmas? For some of you, it's shame. Like you've done things this year, you've done things in the last decade that you just never thought you would have done. And it is tough to come around a story of a God that brings this much peace because you're so, so covered in shame. I go, what would happen this Christmas season if you said, God, would you help me just set aside the shame so I can embrace your son and feel the wonder? For some of you, it's not shame. Maybe it's sorrow. Like you lost a loved one this year. You went through a breakup that you weren't expecting. You lost a job. You got diagnosed with a disease that you didn't think was gonna happen, whatever the story is. And isn't it true that there's something about the holidays that heighten our sense of both joy and sorrow? And for some of you, it is tough to get your mind around the wonder of Jesus because you're so draped in the sorrow of this world. I just wanna encourage you. Jesus entered into the real sorrow there at Bethlehem. He, he entered into the real pain of the real world. And as long as your sorrow is in the front seat of your life, you will struggle to encounter the wonder of the God who can help you deal with the sorrow. What is it that's keeping you from wonder this year? Maybe it's shame, maybe it's sorrow. For some of you, it may be cynicism. I've talked about this a lot today. Some of you are here and you're just convinced Jesus isn't real, this is all a fairy tale. And I just wanna encourage you, just for one month, what would happen if for one month you just laid aside the cynicism? January 1st, if, if Jesus isn't real, go back to believing what you already believe. You have nothing to lose. But if this story is real, you have everything to gain. <laughs> and I want to challenge you, just, just for 30 days, set aside the cynicism. Come in and just ask God, God, if you're real, would you break into to my world? God, if you really exist, would you help me to see your goodness, your realness, your bigness? Some of you need to pray those prayers again. Maybe it's sorrow, maybe it's cynicism, maybe it's shame. I'll give you one more. For some of you, the biggest barrier between you and wonder is yourself. It's amazing how self-centered our celebrations of Christmas have become, even in the midst of our American churches. For some of you, Christmas is just another time. Man, am I gonna get a Christmas bonus? <laughs> am I gonna get a raise? How much am I gonna have to travel? What am I gonna have to do? It's me, 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 me. And nothing will keep you from experiencing the wonder of Jesus. Like the wonder and preoccupation you already have with yourself. And so for some of us this season, it's God, would you help us unwrap the wonder of Jesus as you help me see the, one, the, the reality of who I am. So that first question, what's keeping you from the wonder? Second question, very simple, and we'll go take communion. What is your plan? What is your plan to create space in your life to receive the wonder? What is your plan to create space in your life to receive the wonder? Have you ever noticed that great ideas without great plans always become great regrets? The greatest ideas, man, this is the year I'm gonna lose weight. This is the year I'm gonna do this. This is the year, it's a great idea. Without a great plan, it will always become a great regret. And what I know, I'm not a prophet, but what I know is that those of you who do not choose to make a plan for how the wonder of Christmas will seize your heart this year, you'll wake up on January 1st and you'll be exhausted and tired and distracted and you'll need a vacation from the vacation that you just had. 
And if you're not intentional, the wonder of Christmas will pass you by. God broke into real history and a lot of people are too busy to actually notice it. And it's still happening right now. What is your plan? A couple years ago, Sydney and my wife, she really helped us kind of get our minds around this. It was very helpful. I'll give her all the credit for it. She said, Dave, December is the hardest month of the year for me to worship Jesus because it's so busy and chaotic and our nights are so full and hectic. And she said, what if we took breakfast every day and we just took 30 minutes around breakfast and we reset our hearts around the wonder of Jesus? So that's a great idea. So we started this a few years ago and we started doing it in December and it's actually kind of bled over into the rest of our year. We do, we do it every day now, but it's, it's kind of the rhythm of our Christmas season. Um, every morning we'll take 30 minutes as a family around the breakfast table to really go, okay, God, why is it that you're allowing us to breathe today? What's the purpose of our life? What are you doing? And to come back around the wonder of God, um, just so you can actually try this this week, maybe it's not breakfast, maybe it's dinner, maybe it's a late night coffee, I'd encourage you to set aside some time to capture the wonder. For us, it is not a very beautiful thing. I don't want you to get this overly spiritual picture of what my family is like. We're a real family with three real kids. It's a real struggle. And so our breakfast time around the breakfast table, it's not us sitting around meditating for 30 minutes, you know, reading the Bible in Greek and singing in tongues. Like, it's not this... <laughs> It's not this like glorious, like triumphant experience. A lot of times it is us cleaning up juice and feeding kids oatmeal and us trying to wipe mouths and trying to get kids out the door to school and do all these things. And yet in the midst of it going, hey, Micah, do you know why you exist? Do you know why you're alive? Like, man, God came from heaven to earth for you, buddy. Hey, Jack, do you know what this is all about? Like, you, you know what's going on? Judah, you're one, you don't understand anything. We'll just pray for you. Like, <laughs> do, do, do you get it? Do you see it? Do you sense it? And just stopping so the wonder can come flooding in. What's your plan? What's the thing that's preventing you from experiencing? Let's pray together and we'll take communion and we'll bask in the wonder of God together. Father, thank you so much for being real and for being big.